mentioned last Sunday evening that uh, I would begin on Sunday evenings for a while to address some of the lessons that our young people are studying in the Bible Bowl. They are studying the book of 1 Corinthians for the remainder of the Bible Bowl year. And in doing so, they're going to address some very serious problems that exist in the church. You have to remember the church is composed of real people who have real problems. And some churches struggle because those members of those churches still have a lot of the world left in them. They've not made a full and complete break with the past. And when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you have a church that, as we studied last Sunday evening, endured a very serious sexual scandal. And the church, because of it, was being mocked and belittled in the community to the point where these are things that not even the Gentiles would partake of. This lesson is going to address a financial scandal among the saints. It's almost like you see a scandal here and another scandal here and here's a struggling church trying to face these difficulties when God in reality wants us in the church to live better than the world. We're supposed to be shining lights in a world of darkness. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Peter would write, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against the soul. These are things that really struggle in our lives and pull us down to the world's level. So he says, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then chapter 3, verse 17, For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil. So we need to be the kind of people with great character in the Lord's church. Well, if you're going to take your Bibles out, let's begin in chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and we're going to talk about dealing with differences. Then we'll take verses 7 and 8 and look at these people who were determined to defraud one another. And then in verses 9 through 11, we're going to talk about deliverance from the devil. So if you will, for just a few minutes, let's focus our minds on these texts. If you get to chapter 6, let's look at verses 1 through 6 and and see the big picture here. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, to go before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if, we, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
Now, if you will notice Paul's opening words, dare any of you. Whenever I hear the word dare, I think about being a teenager. And I think about going to class and I think somebody bringing one of those little peppers in and say, you ought to eat this. No, I dare you to do it. And you say, no, 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 I'll double dog dare you to do it. And then you say, all right, I'll try it. That's not the way he's using the word dare here. This is like when someone comes to you after you've done something incredibly bad and say, how dare you do that? What were you thinking? Did you do that without any forethought or any consideration whatsoever? It's confrontational. Paul is looking at the Corinthians and saying, why did you do that? Jesus had previously dealt with differences between brethren. What happens if you have a brother over here and a brother over here and they have a disagreement about something? In fact, one has done something that has not just offended but is actually wrong toward another. Well, I want you to consider with me what Jesus wrote in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, and then going back to chapter 5. In Matthew 18, verse 15, he says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that at the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to hear even the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. I think it's obvious here that someone has done something that is sinful. Not somebody who hurt your feelings or not somebody who just said something you didn't approve. But somebody who sinned against you. What do you do? You go to him and you show him his fault. You show him, here's how you have mistreated me. Here's what you have done that's wrong. And he says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Nobody else need be involved. But maybe perhaps he, he can't see the picture clear enough. So he says, take with you one or two that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. You confront him again. If he hears those group, that's great. If he doesn't, you tell it to the church. And then he's got to hear the church. The idea behind this, this is how you resolve the differences. On the other hand, in Matthew 5, verses 23 through 25, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way and first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hands you over to the officer and you be thrown in prison. Obviously the case in Matthew 5 is serious enough to be thrown into prison for. So you remember you've done wrong and you're, you've been rebuked by it and now you know you've got an obligation. You see, the Lord dealt with dealing with differences and here in Corinth, you have a real situation, a real scandal. But the Lord also recognizes that sometimes we need help in resolving things. Sometimes two people cannot communicate well enough and you need somebody to intervene or intercede. 
In Philippians chapter 4, you remember those two dear sisters at Philippi. Paul said in verse 2, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind of the Lord and I urge you also, true yoke fellow, help these women who labor with me in the gospel. These people need some help. I want you to go and I want you to intercede and to intervene. That's good because the truth is if a brother intercedes for us, he has a greater motivation than just wanting to resolve a matter. You see, if you have two of you who have bought a horse and you've traded among yourselves and one of you feels like you've been cheated and you can't come to an agreement on that, you could always get a civil judge who would say, okay, you're right, you're wrong, you pay this, you pay that. But you see, a brother has a greater motivation in mind. The brother says, you know what? The souls of both of those guys are important. And the way we want this is to work out is, is so that everybody gets to go to heaven. And there's an, an added value that cannot be measured. But the next thing he also tells us, they're more capable. When you look at verses 2 and 3, I recognize they're difficult when he starts talking about our judging in eternity. And he starts talking about judging angels. I wish I could tell you I knew everything all about that. I don't. Verses 2 and 3, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Again, I say I don't know it all, but when I go to Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Oh, they had judgment. Saints are in a little bit different position because they've got not only the knowledge of right versus wrong, but they understand the eternal consequences of these matters. And so Paul is trying to look at them. In fact, he says, is, is it a shame? Is there not even one brother among you who is able to handle this matter? You know, let's say you look at a congregation of people. Let's say that congregation has been there for 50, 75 years. They're a pretty good size and say, okay, we need elders. Well, I'm sorry, we don't have anybody qualified. You mean you've been there that long and you have no one qualified? That, that ought to be an embarrassment to us. If we have brethren who are having a disagreement and we don't have anybody who can not sit down and work with them, well, that's a shameful thing. But evidently the chief concern here for Paul was that was before unbelievers. Taking the matter before worldly people. And here's the bottom line. We as Christians are not to air our dirty laundry, so to speak, before the world and give them an opportunity to criticize the Lord's church. You and I ought to be capable of handling these things so that the world doesn't see the bad side of some of the people within the church. That brings me to verses 7 and 8. These are some key verses here. In fact, this is the focus of the text. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you to go to law against one another. 
Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Now here, listen carefully. Know you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. You are liars, you're cheaters, you're stealers, you see, you're thieves. And this is the heart of the problem of the chapter. Because one of the brethren here has an evil heart of wanting to defraud, take advantage of his brother. I don't know about you, but I am absolutely, positively, 100%, completely frustrated by these telemarketer calls all day long, every day. It just seems as if they are just coming more and more frequent. And it's ridiculous because all these people have in their mind, they're wanting to cheat me, cheat you, out of money, whatever they can get. That's their motivation. But you know, I understand that there are some of these people who have no morals. They have no conscience whatsoever. I couldn't pick up the phone and call people and cheat them all day long every day. These people, I know they have no conscience. But Christians? Cheating other people? Oh, that's awful. Christians cheating a brother? That's even worse. How should you respond to such a challenge as this? How should you deal with this? Well, Paul says sometimes... For the good of the church, the Christian must be willing to accept wrongful treatment. I know that sounds unfair. You know why it sounds unfair? Because it is unfair. But you see, there's some things more important in this world than just always getting what you are justly deserving. Sometimes we find in ourselves in the world, and let me tell you, I have seen godly men and godly women practice this very thing. I've seen them say, I know that's pretty significant. I know it's not right. I know it's not fair, but I don't want to hurt the church. I don't want to do anything that's going to cause uh, somebody to look at us and say, well, they can't get along with one another. And so I'm going to accept the wrong. Listen to Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will recompense evil. Wait for the Lord and He will save you. Well, I could. I could return evil for evil, but no, don't do that. Romans 12, 17 through 19. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 15. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone. But always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. That no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such 
as we have forewarned you and testified. Ah, now there's the passage. That's the one I've been looking for. He says, don't you defraud because the Lord's going to address that. Let me tell you what I have observed by people who are willing to accept mistreatment. The Lord generally finds some way to bless their life because of their stand for mistreatment. I have seen several preachers who were promised many things when they would go to a congregation. Oh, we will do this for you. We'll do that for you. And then all of a sudden, abruptly, they're saying, okay, we're, we're letting you go. Well, what, what about what you promised? Oh, we're not doing that now. And someone says, well, maybe you ought to force them to do what they promised. No, I'm going to go on. I'm going to do what's right. They'll have to answer to God for what they've done. I've seen some of those same brothers do very well because of the attitudes which they took. In 1 Peter 2 verse 19, For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently, but when you do good and suffer... And you take it patiently. This is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps, who did no sin, neither was sin found, or, uh, found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile again, when he suffered did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Boy, that's a hard thing to do. Now, the third part of this is the deliverance from the devil. Here's the devil. He's come into the church at Corinth. And he has stirred up trouble. He has dealt with this scandal of this man having his father's wife, chapter 5. You now have a scandal of people taking law to brethren and to defraud and to cheat. Listen carefully. Paul summarizes this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkard, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, the unrighteous. These are the people who've come out of the world into the church, but they're still living like the world. And you know what? People who are in the church who still live like the world have to look forward to condemnation. They do not get to go to heaven, according to verse 11. And some evidently felt they could keep practicing these sins and still go to heaven. Some people think, I can do these things. Notice what he says, fornicators. Some people think, I can go out and I can live as an immoral life as I want to live, and God's going to let me still go to heaven. There are going to be idolaters who have put something ahead of God, and they worship it, they give their lives for it. Adulterers, people who are no longer faithful in their marriages, they're going out and they're committing affairs. Homosexuals and sodomites. 
the LGBTQ, whatever other letter you want to add to it, community. They can't go to heaven. That's what the Bible says. Thieves, covetous, people who are wanting what somebody else has. Yes, that applies to this text here. Drunkards. Oh, I know our city can make it available on every corner and they can say, oh, we want to have it at every event. Christians don't participate. Revilers, extortioners or swindlers. He said, you see those people? He said, they don't get to go to heaven. But listen carefully. And such were some of you. The church at Corinth had some people who had done some pretty bad things in the past. They had a pretty checkered lifestyle prior to becoming a child of God. But you notice, were some of you. That's not who you are, that's who you were. 1 Peter 4, 3 said, We have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatry. Will you go up there to the idol's temple and you participate? No, we've done that enough. We, we don't do that anymore. Titus 3, verse 3, We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And preparing this lesson, I think that last verse, hateful and hating one another, that sounds like the United States of America right now. And you know what's the truth? If we're not careful, we'll get ourselves in exactly the same position. Such were some of you. We have left that old lifestyle. He said, you were washed. You were baptized. Acts 22, verse 16. And now while you're waiting, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. From that you were sanctified. That means to be set apart by the Lord for good. God didn't set you apart to be a part of a harlot. He didn't set you apart to participate in all these evil things. He put you aside apart for doing good. And then you were justified. You were forgiven. Your sins were washed away. You were standing holy before God and added to His kingdom, to His body, to His church. Colossians 1 and verse 13, He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or translated us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Oh, God loves us. And so as you look at the church at Corinth, He said, you know what? You folks are supposed to have left that worldly lifestyle. And this scandal that's going on, whether it's the one of chapter 5 or this greediness of chapter 6, it's time to leave it in the past. Corinth was plagued with partisan division. I, Paul, I, Cephas, I, Christ, chapter 1, verses 10 and following. And sometimes when people were lining up behind their friends and saying, well, I'm going to stand with him or I'll stand with him. Here's where you stand. You stand firmly on the Word of God and what is right, and you do what is right, and God will bless you. 
Our goal should be for the unity and the good of the Lord's church. You and I need to make sure when we study 1 Corinthians, we say, I'm not going to do what they were doing that was wrong. I'm going to listen to the message of hope, the message of change, the message that says, be better and do what is right. Jesus, the loving shepherd, he's calling us. Are you willing to become a child of God and come tonight and become a Christian? Are you a Christian who needs to be restored? If you do, come while we stand and sing.